Well, tonight it is our privilege to hear from Tim Costello from Micah Challenge on the question, why Australia needs refugees? It's actually a question rarely asked. From the shock jocks to sky after dark, from outback towns to One Nation supporters, why does Australia need refugees? Yet Tim has established himself as one of the most consistently compassionate voices in Australian public life. From the Baptist pastor on the streets of St Kilda or founding Urban Seed in Melbourne CBD more than 20 years ago, when I first met Tim, I was working next door at St John's Darlinghurst in a very similar ministry, through to CEO of World Vision for more than a decade, to his current roles as Chief Advocate for World Vision and Executive Director of, Director of Market Australia, Tim has always had the wonderful gift of saying what needs to be said. So please welcome Tim Costello. Well, good evening and uh, thank you so much for that introduction. It's pretty much as I wrote it, really. So uh, I um, am delighted to be here. I come from a little village just south of Sydney you wouldn't have heard of called Melbourne and uh, very, very uh, gracious for you to put on a balmy night. Um, Melbourne people are into weather. We... Uh, we have about five varieties in every day, so it's always lovely to come here. We've, we've got a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about Sydney. We once were the, uh, the commercial capital and you know, the federal parliament was there in Melbourne for the first 24 years. Today I notice even when I try and offend people in Sydney, telling them how superior Melbourne is, what really upsets me is people in Sydney just ignore me. <laughs> Sort of like you know you're superior and the, uh, the fight's over. Anyway, um, those uh, tribal geographical identities aside, great to be here. Great to be in the electorate of Wentworth. You have been in the news. <laughs> Even in that little southern village we heard about Wentworth. And uh, we uh, were sort of jealous. It seems like in Wentworth your vote actually counts. <laughs> that... Uh, the whole nation can be hanging on a by-election. So, you start to think about this issue, why, why um, Australia needs refugees. I'm gratified that so many have come out on a Saturday night. Maybe there's no good movies on at the moment, but to actually engage in a morally serious issue, not a light issue, to give up your time, uh, I don't take that lightly. Uh, all any of us have in life really is time. That's why when someone wastes your time, they're really a thief, aren't they? <laughs> you can't actually get it back. So to invest your time and say, I choose to be here and deal with a very heavy, morally serious issue on a Saturday night, I think is really important. So I uh, really want us to think about the question, how did we get here? We live in a country with a long history of migration. Forced or otherwise, we meet clearly, and it's been acknowledged on traditional lands of the Gadigal people, of the Eora Nation, first contact down there in Botany Bay. And even though when they ran up the uh, Union Jack and sovereignty of every indigenous person from Botany Bay to the Kimberley, 
like ink dropping on a blot had just spread and they were now sovereigns of King George III. Uh, no one asked them, but now they were. We are struggling with the meaning of our story and what it means to actually not have, as one um, Baptist minister in Woolloomooloo said back in uh, 1838, I think, he said, what then is this whispering in our soul? We are a great, great nation, a great colonizing nation. We've done so much. We're so proud of being Australian. What then is this whispering in our soul? And I think the first answer to the question of why we need refugees is to actually be at peace in our soul, in our sense of who we are, our sense of dignity, of respect, of understanding our story, great and mixed as it is. Well, it's a story that uh, 250 years ago um, we came as boat people, at least that's the only technology that was there. 117 years ago, our country federated and the uh, first act of parliament that went through was the Immigration Restriction Act. It was the architect for what became the white Australia policy. Interesting, that was the first thing that struck us. I sort of understand this. I'm now of that age where I feel a bit like a dinosaur still walking the earth. Uh, I didn't just study ancient history, I lived through it. Uh, and my grandmother Scottish, my grandfather, who she was married to English, when I would stay with them and they would pull open the curtains, I lived in Melbourne, Murrumbina, and look out the window, I could tell from the longing in their eyes, when they looked out the window, they just hoped they'd see Edinburgh or London. They were more likely to see Dili or Jakarta or Singapore. That sense that we are a British nation stuck in the wrong part of the world, but thankfully we have this massive ocean around us which we have to then build a white society was really what the white Australia policy was all about. Over 70 years ago, World War II came to an end. Prime Minister Ben Chifley established a Department of Immigration. He believed Australia now needed significant immigration to keep us safe. Populate or perish really was the survival instinct. Interesting, Ben Chifley did that. When he ran first in Bathurst, his seat in 1928, his first election, his election slogan was, Heroes, not Dagos. He was profoundly anti-immigration. Dagos, Italians, weren't going to be of British stock. It's interesting when you think of just the shifts, even in our great Prime Minister's minds. Well, the focus for him with Populato Parish was white British migrants, but there weren't enough, and it soon included Southern and Eastern European migrants and refugees. The only two requirements was to be in good health and under 45 years of, old, of age. Many found, as we know, work on the Snowy Mountains scheme and labourers from all over the world started to come. We then overcame our shame, shared with the rest of the world 
at our failure in 1938 in Evian. The world's nations gathered to say, what will we do for the Jews in Germany and it's going to be perhaps East Europe next under Hitler. At Evian, Mr. White, the member for Balaclava, which is St Kilda, I, uh, I was the last mayor ever of St Kilda. I did such a good job they abolished the whole council. Uh, Balaclava was in uh, St Kilda. Uh, Mr. White, deputised to go on behalf of our government, said, we don't have a racial problem in Australia. We're not taking one Jew. 1938. The rest of the nations of the world basically said the same. 1938, just before. But Hitler, Kristallnacht had happened. It was, thank you. Exactly. So they, the world knew what Hitler was going to do. It was already clear. And they said, no, we're not taking one. It was out of that that the UN Convention on Refugees, which... Our government has been quietly, well, it's been breaching, but quietly trying to say, can we walk away from it? The UN Convention of Refugees was struck for this reason, to say we failed so manifestly, six million Jews died. By the way, 11 million died in the Holocaust in camps. Gypsies, communists, uh, lots of others died too, but six million Jews died. Canada's just apologised this week. I don't know if you saw Trudeau say... We turned boats back and they went back to the death camps of Jews. The UN Convention on Refugees, which sort of is at the heart of our legal architecture and struggle and we keep breaching it, really was to say never again. That was pretty important in terms of all the Bretton Woods inst uh, uh, institutions set up after 1945. Literally, we said, whether it's World Bank or IMF, the United Nations, we know nationalism has led to two world wars. We have to have some international rules, including conventions like the UN Convention on Refugees, if we're to be civilised, if we actually are going to be able to live together. That was a remarkable achievement, those uh, institutions, because... Uh, they really introduced in international law a, a novel concept. The concept that justice applies to minorities. What we now know in 2008 and 18 is that the fate of an individual, particularly when it comes to justice, depends on their citizenship. If you're Somali or South Sudanese or Rohingya, your fate is sealed. The international convention said to be civilised, we will not accept that. They um, really picked up uh, an ancient Greek notion, looking at the uh, educated audience that's here tonight, I'm sure over the weekend, you've all been reading Thucydides and the History of the Peloponnesian Wars. <laughs> Am I right? There the great powers were Athens and Sparta and bit like America and a bit like uh, China today, they were the great city-state powers. They're fighting for dominance. The Athenians going off to war with the Spartans knocked off a small city-state called the Miletians. The Miletians said, this is unjust, this is unfair, this is wrong. 
for you just because you beg to do it to us. What did the Athenians say? It's all their enthusiasties. They said, no, no, no. To the Miletians, you don't understand. Justice only exists between equal powers. You are small, you will suffer what you must. We are great, we will do what we want to do. The international institutions, Bretton Woods institutions and international law, international criminal court were really, UN Convention on Refugees, were to say no, no. Justice actually exists, not just between equal powers. What we're fearing is the tearing up of those international rules at the moment, whether they're world trade rules, whether they're pacts we've agreed on at Paris and climate change, we are seeing the tearing up and, of course, countries and Australia's been at the forefront of it, undermining the UN Convention on Refugees. Well, 46 years ago, um, the drawn-out Vietnam War was coming to an end. At the end of it, we disbanded any remnant of the white Australian policy and we began to take Vietnamese refugees. I'm very proud of World Vision's role in this. We bought a uh, boat called Sea Sweep and started picking up Indo-Chinese boat people in the South China Sea and around and trying to land at Hong Kong, at KL, Singapore. No country wanted to take them. We kept trying to land them until enough nations, and it wasn't just us, others were trying too, were so embarrassed, they said, right, Malcolm Fraser, Gough Whitland, but Malcolm Fraser, who was bipartisan, deserves a lot of credit for this, saying we actually must take them. And eventually KL and Singapore let them land on agreement that Australia, Canada, um, America would take them. But that was the end of the white Australia policy. And we took in the largest intake of Asian people to Australia since the gold rush. And aren't we glad when we go to Vietnamese restaurants and Cambodian restaurants? And uh, 17 years ago, wars underway in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we instituted the Pacific Solution, by which asylum seekers were first moved to islands outside of, of Australia's maritime borders, Nauru, eventually Manus, the idea that, well, really, another nation's looking after them, maintaining a fiction, uh, they're sovereign, uh, actually, it's us, um, they're poor nations. 2001, of course, the Tampa and children overboard, um, John Howard declared, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. That really burnt in a mindset that sort of jumped back to the fear of white Australia. We're protected by this greater ocean. Uh, we'll take the people we want, preferably British migrants. All right, let's take a few Greeks and Italians too. We need them. But then this rapid change with Indo-Chinese, but a fear, a fear that came. We will decide who comes. Five years ago, Prime Minister Rudd, after disbanding the Pacific Solution in 2007, then had a change of heart. He decided that from now on, any asylum seeker who arrives in Australia by boat, by boat will have no chance of being settled in Australia as refugees. Rudd says, I think a bit disingenuously, it was only meant to be 12 months, it was to be reviewed, that. 
But now you had bipartisanship in terms of these islands and no people are going to come. Prime Minister uh, Abbott was uh, in 2007 um, elected and instituted, uh, not, uh, not 2007, 2010, wasn't it? 13. And instituted Operation Sovereign Borders. So then we fast forward to August of this year. At World Vision we did some polling and we discovered that more than half of all Australians had no idea that there are 119 kids trapped on Nauru. Our politicians, both sides, were effectively saying there's no kids on Nauru. Remember that? Well, isn't that funny? 119 kids on Nauru. No wonder most Australians actually were believing that, that line. 90 days ago, along with partners across the sector, World Vision launched Kids Off Nauru campaign. As of today, and this is the power of the Wentworth by-election and a number of other things happening, 92 children and their full family units have been brought from Nauru to Australia. There are just 27 children left on Nauru. All that from 119 kids in 90 days. This sense. And of course, your, your uh, new member, the newest member of parliament, has vowed to make it her mission to get the remaining children off Nauru. How did we get there when it seemed like nothing was budging and it was a wedge political issue and the polling was just that Australians don't care, that like the rest of the world, we're retribalizing, we're turning inwards, those winds are blowing everywhere, probably a, a whiplash against globalization and just saying, let's just look after ourselves. It's happening not just in America and Brexit, but now in Brazil, it's happening all around the world. Those are extraordinary nationalist winds blowing. I, I call them the old gods. They're the old gods of blood and soil. Blood leads to racism. Soil leads to nationalism. I don't think those gods ever went away. I think they are hungry for human sacrifice and literally eh, these gods have been tearing up international rules, undermining UN conventions on refugees, uh, saying we're just going to look after ourselves. But notwithstanding, we've seen a moment, a moment where public opinion seemed to shift as we said, there are that many kids on Nauru when you thought there were none. And whatever you think about sovereign borders, it's never right to lock up kids. <laughs> that message just started to cut through in surprising places. One of the things we did, uh, Robert Mann, who some of you will know, Frank Brennan, who some of you know, John Menadieu, who was the head of DFAT, and I sort of broke ranks on pragmatic terms. Two years ago, we wrote an article saying, though turnbacks have no transparency and we don't know the cruelty of turnbacks, there is no doubt that turnbacks, breaking up smuggling rings, have stopped the boats. Therefore, 
this torture of indefinite detention for people on Manus and Nauru. I was up on Manus just this time last year. It is psychological torture, not knowing your fate. We said, the boats have stopped by turn back. We believe there is now no public policy justification for this torture of people on Manus and Nauru. Now, some in the refugee sector were critical and said, no, no, you've got to hold the line. Turnbacks are wrong. They're immoral. We took a view. You can never shift public opinion without that. Because of that view, when we kicked off this campaign, Kids Off Nauru, 90 days ago, we were staggered that The Telegraph, which I'm sure you all read here, <laughs> and The Herald Sun, the Murdoch Press, were giving us double page spreads about kids on Nauru and saying, actually, this is shocking. It's still regrettable that you often have to have the Murdoch press on side to, uh, to change public opinion. But we made that calculation, saying, let's actually get them on side. Now, I think we will see all the kids off Nauru. I still am really afraid for them here because they've still been told you can't settle here, any families can't. We still need the New Zealand solution. New Zealand, uh, in my mind, is the Good Samaritan. Australia is a bit like the priest and the Levite passing by, but even worse, interfering and beating up the Good Samaritan as he actually helps. New Zealand will take them. This nonsense that, oh, well, there's got to be a lifetime ban, there can't be a back door. No, no, no. Turn back and breaking up the smuggling rings is what has stopped the boats. How do I know this? Because about two weeks ago, the Australian were leaked information, you might have read it, showing that there had been 33 boats, 800 people on them turned back. There had been another 2,500 people who uh, would have come uh, but for the breaking up of smuggling rings in um, Malaysia and in Indonesia. In other words, it's working. As I said to Peter Dutton after I came back from Manus, you and I both know this. Smugglers are always trying to come into Australia. It might be drugs, it might be arms, it might be people. All countries know that smugglers are always trying. You and I know, I said to Peter Dutton, that it is actually turned back. That is why the boats haven't start, uh, restarted and that's why you can let these people out of Manus and reset them here and let the kids out of Nauru with their families. Well, let me just take a step back and say um, the world still faces a big displacement crisis and Australia can't take them all. Uh, we have 65 million people displaced, about 20 million of those who probably will need to be resettled as refugees. 45 million just want to go back home. One of the things we forget is that most people want to go back home, but how do you go back to Syria when... Uh, its cities look like uh, Dresden after the war, just shocking bombing. But we certainly have responsibilities to think through, particularly at this time when the world is turning inwards. We 
in Australia have had the luxury of going, we've got this massive sea around us so we can pull up the drawbridge and we'll be, we'll be different. Europe can't with the Mediterranean, they can get across. Most other countries can't. What upsets me though is how our government loves to tell us we're the most generous when it comes to refugee resettlement. There's about 10 countries that have onshore resettlement and uh, we're about third of those 10 countries on a per capita basis. But the global refugee crisis profoundly falls on low income countries, really poor countries who are much, much more generous to refugees than rich Australia. Here's the names of the 10 countries that uh, have hosted the most refugees. Turkey, Pakistan, Ethiopia, Lebanon, Iran, Jordan, Kenya, Uganda, Chad. There's only one representative from the G20 in the top 10, and that's Germany. G20 are the rich nations, it's all the poor nations that are doing all the heavy lifting. When we want to be congratulating ourselves because the politicians tell us that we're so more generous, we actually have to have some facts. <laughs> In Lebanon, and I've gone there many times uh, to the Syrian refugees, one in four people is a refugee. In Uganda, and I go there in January of each year, uh, I'm just so moved by uh, the number of refugees that Uganda have taken in and haven't closed the border. First it was from the Congo, then from Central African Republic. Most uh, incredibly, it's been over a million South Sudanese refugees that have fled across the border into Uganda because of tribal conflict in the last year. And those refugees are given the full rights of Ugandan citizens except the right to vote. They go to the local schools, the local hospitals, as poor as they are. They um, are given by the Ugandan government 30 by 30 metres of land. World Vision gives them some tools and we set up foster families because Many are unaccompanied kids whose parents have just said, follow the suffering column of humanity, the neighbours. They don't know if their parents are still alive or not. They arrive after a week dazed and we set up foster families. But the Ugandan government gives them 30 by 30 metres of land. And they have all the same rights. And I say to Uganda's leaders, this is amazing, you haven't closed the border and you're still welcome, welcoming them with international aid assistance organisations like World Vision. Why do you do it, I ask? You know what they say? Because we were once refugees under Idi Amin. It really hits you how empathy is so profoundly important to say we knew and know what that was like. And how could we, knowing that we had to flee to other nations? I fear if Australia ever has a dictatorial government and we need to flee, who's going to take us? Well, one in every 113 people in the world are displaced. Australia, according to the latest figures released by the UNHCR, ranks... 59th in the world when it comes to the total number of refugees we host as a 
proportion of our population. 59th. 95th as a proportion of our GDP. Really, when we hear our leaders saying that we're so generous, we should really laugh in their face. 59th on population and... Uh, Sorry, I'll just get rid of that. And 95th in terms of GDP. Has it always been this way in Australia? A leading Australian politician said these words. It is a good thing that Australia should have earned a reputation for a sensitive understanding of the problems of people in other lands. That we should not come to be regarded as people who are detached from the miseries of the world. I know that we will not come to be so regarded. For I believe that there are no people anywhere with warmer hearts and more generous impulses. That was Prime Minister Robert Menzies. It was bipartisan, particularly after the UN Convention on Refugees when we failed at Evian, that we will do our share of lifting. This was not a left or a right issue. This was identity, who we are, what is the story we tell about ourselves. I uh, wonder what Robert Menzies will think about today. We know how former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser felt about this issue and how shocked he was about the treatment of refugees that he resigned from the Liberal Party. That's not my party, he was saying. I don't recognise this. And he, of course, worked under Robert Menzies. Two days ago, the New York Times published an article called Zero Tolerance Immigration and Suicidal Children, The Nauru Experience. It is shaming of Australia and our record on immigration. When you think that Menzies was talking about our global reputation as a sensitive understanding of the problems of people from other lands, and read that New York Times article, you wonder what's happened. We need refugees to rediscover who we are, what our humanity is, what empathy is. I think empathy probably is one of the distinguishing features of humans compared to animals, that we are able to go, what if that was me? What would that be like? Now, we can't take everyone, but we sure shouldn't be boasting about how generous we are when we're... 59th or 95. Well, the Kids Off Nauru campaign has been a success. The government's acknowledged that all children would be off the island by the end of the year. That was unthinkable just 90 days ago. We need to take heart. Things can and do change. Uh, we certainly want a permanent workable solution for those families. And the argument, you know, again, that I put to Dutton was, if you say by allowing one of those Nauru or Manus Island people to resettle in Australia or start all the boats again, why didn't the boats start again when some got to go to America under the Trump-Turnbull deal? If the theory and the principle is the boats will restart if you give any of them hope, they should have restarted. They won't restart again going to New Zealand. And in any event, it is turned back and breaking up, breaking up the uh, smuggling enterprises. Well, let me, uh, since we're in a church, say, where does my passion for this come from? It comes from uh, my faith. 
I believe that every human carries the Imago Dei, the image of God. Whether refugee, whatever your sexuality, your gender, whatever your birth citizenship uh, certificate, you carry the image of God. And I think this is profoundly important. I remember in my urban seed days, that was uh, working with drug addicts, we had a, uh, a uh, clinic called the First Step Rehabilitating, Well Feeding and Housing because heroin was flooding the streets of Melbourne. Sitting with a heroin addict in the street, trying to convince him to get into our heroin clinic, and I said words that rolled off my tongue pretty naturally. I didn't think about them. I just said, you know what? I think God made you. What surprised me was he burst into tears. And I thought, oh, he's not religious. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and then through the tears, he said, God made me. He said, my old man told me I'm just an accident. He said, I've only ever felt an interruption, unwanted. God made me. Just this notion that there is a point to my life, that there is something, the Imago Deo, something sacred about who I am. Well, when we start to think about every human being matters, Whatever faith you have or known faith, it's expressed. Most faiths are expressed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That sense that human rights are universal and indivisible, that your fate should not depend on what country you hold citizenship in. This is what the international rules to being civilized actually mean. And where we have nations of the world saying, okay, there's 20 million probably who need to be resettled. That's not difficult. We settled five times that number after the end of the Second World War. We're a lot wealthier than then. This, with global cooperation, is absolutely possible. The other thing for me from my faith is, um, it's amazing when you start to think about the refugee crisis, how... So many of the great heroes of the Bible that I read were exiles, were refugees. Exile is sort of the main theme of the Bible when you think about it. Exiled from the Garden of Eden, then in slavery in Egypt you get back to the Promised Land but then the Babylonians knock you off and you're exiled in Babylon, you get back again. You're sort of back in the Promised Land but you're under the Romans and it feels shocking because you are still living in exile. You don't have control over your life. And the great longing for a Messiah is, if our sins can be forgiven, that will mean the end of exile. That's actually right at the heart of what forgiveness of sins means. If we're forgiven, it will be the end of exile. The fascinating thing in the Bible is that even God, who exiles us out of the Garden of Eden, even God is a stranger who has been exiled. God who turns up in interesting disguises as the refugee, as the exile. It's quite extraordinary when you start to put a refugee lens on. And you realize that so much of human longing is to go back home, to know hospitality when beyond your circumstances you have been forced into exile. 
this is fundamental to our humanity. It's fundamentally why Australia needs refugees. In uh, one of my books, Faith, I talk about the trap of thinking of our country as an unassailable ocean liner, charting our own course, keeping others at bay. Well, it can't go on. We may be the only nation continent on earth, the biggest inhabited island, but at the same time, we're no longer an island. The world is a waterbed. You press down here, it comes up here. Whether it's climate change, whether it's refugees, whether it's war and conflict, we need to understand the interdependence and to play our role. 50 years ago, Bobby Kennedy described what I'm talking about. He was addressing a crowd in South Africa. He called it the illusion of difference, which he said is at the root of injustice and hate and war. Only earthbound humans still cling to the dark and poisoning superstition that their world is bounded by the nearest hill. Their universe ended at the river shore. Their common humanity enclosed in the tight circle of those who share their town and views and the colour of their skin. His challenge to the audience then, I think it's the same for us tonight. It is your job to strip the last remnants of that ancient, cruel belief, the illusion of difference, to strip that from humanity. It is one humanity. We have to find a way to live together. Let me just make some closing remarks about Imago Australis. Um, what's the image we want here in Australia? I think all of us want a compassionate, big-hearted Australia. We can't take everyone, but we want to do our share of the load-bearing. In our reckoning, that would mean Australia taking around about 40,000 asylum seekers or refugees as our load-sharing. Other nations also having to st step up. We know we've had a reputation uh, of going beyond and uh, being on about a fair share. <coughs> we don't have a, a slogan that uh, defines our history. Uh, Americans have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. two weeks ago, and uh, I didn't see a lot of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> uh, I felt it was a nation coming apart. Uh, so many families who can't even have Thanksgiving together in case politics comes up and it's the end of family. But they have a slogan, life, um, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. French have liberty, equality and fraternity. We don't quite have a, a self-definition. But I think we do struggle with what's the image of Australia? What image are we the bearers of to the world? We have a very blessed nation. The Global Peace Index constantly rates us in the top 10 most peaceful countries on the planet. We rank first in the United Nations Education Index, sixth on the Life Expectancy Index, third on the Human Development Index. Well, we can describe all those things and it's pretty good. But when we describe ourselves, it's pretty interesting. Half of Australians were either born overseas or had a parent born overseas. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, when you think of the Immigration Restriction Act in white Australia. 
28% of the population were born overseas. 48, 49% have a parent at least born overseas. Behind Luxembourg, we're the most multicultural country on the planet. And Luxembourg's not very big. Uh, but it's time to define who we are. We believe in democracy. We believe in peace. We say we're young and free. Will we believe in migration and welcome of refugees, our share of this? Because we have boundless planes to share. Will we believe in a fair go for all and the ability for anyone, no matter who they are, where they're from, to build themselves a life here? I could tell you lots of refugee stories of people who have come here. You know some of the famous ones, Frank Lowy, Richard Pratt, Aaliyah, Aaliyah, a great Sudanese uh, halfback for, do you follow AFL here? <laughs> for the Sydney Swans, uh, Les Murray, Ando and Dr. Carl, TV personalities. Uh, names like Najiba was a Fardost. Her family fled the Taliban, arrived in Australia in 2000 by boat. She was 11. She arrived with her four siblings and her pregnant mum. She didn't know English. But by 14, she'd learned it well enough to win a national essay competition. She finished school, founded an organisation helping migrant women adjust to life in Australia. Her dream well on the way to achieving it, is to be an international lawyer and help displaced people around the world. I'm proud. She's a fellow citizen. She's Australian. Sahid al Kassab is a young guy who does some work with World Vision. He and his brother fled Syria in the midst of the civil war. They saw their family killed. He himself was shot. They saw their homes destroyed. He was accepted into a Catholic school in Melbourne during his final year, he worked as a gardener at the school to earn his keep and duxed his year. He's studying medicine on the way to becoming a doctor. When he speaks and shows the pictures of his home in Syria, Syrians were very middle class and very sophisticated. And then you hear what he's been through to get here. Why do we need refugees? Because it restores our humanity. It brings us alive. We start to understand what this nation... In, in its best sense, was all about. To have hearts that are hardened and borders that are closed is not an Australia that any of us will recognise. The truth is, stories of people like Najiba, Saad and Saad show us that Australia needs refugees. Not just because they carry the image of God, but because at the end of the day, their story is multiplied so many times. And it could be, could be us that they matter and their context that they're fleeing from, we will understand. We will offer peace in the midst of conflict, opportunity in the midst of crisis and for all of us, a richer, deeper, brighter future for Australia. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Uh, there's going to be opportunities for questions in a moment, but just while Tim catches breath, uh, we have been streaming live. That's now ending, and we have been recording for a podcast. That's now ending.